John Chrysostom, an early bishop of Constantinople, was highly recognized for his preaching and well-known in his day for his oratory skills. However, there was a point where society began to turn away from him and the church began to turn away from him as he started preaching against the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Specifically, he had offended the Empress Eudoxia. She took personal offense to his preaching against the extravagance. And with others, she took part, with other people, took part in the Synod of Oak in A.D. 403. And that synod would force John Chrysostom to flee and to live his last years in exile before his death. The words that provoked her wrath were 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, or 9 through 15, specifically verses 9 and 10. Every word stood against her lifestyle. This happens to be the same text we enter to in this morning. And the pushback that John Chrysostom received back then still causes our society to flare today. It's a difficult text to preach, not because the intention is so unclear, but because our natural inclination these days is to deny its veracity and its applicability. But this text remains sufficiently relevant for today, just as much as it was for then. And so while it would be easy to move rather quickly through these verses, hoping to avoid any potential controversy, I think it's important to look at them, and my plan is to prayerfully move along this text at a slower rate. Because in these verses, what I want us to see is not just the Lord's commands, but I want us to appreciate the Lord's intentions and his creation of women. So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I want to bring to you a message that I've titled, titled Appreciating a Woman's Value. And specifically, we're going to focus today on her character. And so please stand for the reading of God's word. First Timothy chapter 2, and I'm going to begin verse, reading in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Continuing in chapter 3, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not a violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, 
He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord. I pray this morning that indeed we would submit ourselves to your word. Lord, cause us to have humble hearts to, and to examine your truth, Lord, and to understand more of your will for people by looking at this text this morning, Lord. And so may you be glorified and elevated by what we see here. We commit this time to you in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There's a well-known illustration dating back to an 1888 German postcard. Depending on how you view this illustration, or this illusion is what it is, it either looks like a young woman who is exceptionally dressed, or it looks like an old woman who is notable for her wrinkles. When asked to look at this illusion, most people will only see the young woman at first. It is only after a brief explanation and sometimes a little bit of coaching that the picture of the old woman becomes clear. What is interesting for most people, generally speaking, whatever image you see first will be the image you see first forevermore, every time you look at that image. The two perspectives explain how we can view the text placed before us this morning. From a post-postmodern perspective of our current era, we can look at this text in 1 Timothy as a vicious attack on the freedom, liberation, and independence of women. But through a secular lens, that's exactly how the verses are interpreted. At the same time, that's how they're manipulated to undermine the authority of the Lord's word today. And this is the first view that most people have of the text. And so it's the first view that many of them have of the text when they come to it. See, but like that illusion, like this illusion, if we shift our perspective and, and look upon the text with the clarity of a biblical lens, it becomes a picture of the value and esteem afforded or should be afforded to women. The debate about women at this point has really left the pages of Scripture. It's been hijacked by a society that has proven that it really has little value for human life, including women. And yet under this facade of protecting life and adding value to a woman, what they've really done is diminished both their worth and the appreciation, as evidenced by how they react to the words in this text. How we react to these words reveals not just how we've allowed the culture to influence our thinking, and how much we've really permitted it to shape and influence and regulate our lives, but truly, if we refute these inspired words, what we've done is elevated our authority. We show ourselves prideful, unwilling to learn from this text. At the same time, if we rationalize these, then we undermine the authority of God's truth. And finally, if we reason against them, then we open ourselves to the authority of others over God. 
Whatever the case may be, all three of those instances, what we've done or what a person will do is undermine the authority of God. And that's where our society is. They have taken the authority of the Lord and delegated it to themselves. And in the process, they've made a ruin of the beauty of God's creation. When God created women, what he did was made something from nothing. He created order from disorder. That's indeed what he did at all of creation. And yet where God made something from nothing, now what society is doing is making nothing from something. Where God created order out of disorder, they've reverse engineered it to make disorder out of order by undermining God's truth here. It has led us to a society who cannot value a woman because they can't even define what a woman is. Ideas have consequences. And one of those consequences of this idea is the unwillingness to value the uniqueness of some of the things a woman does. Because it's mentioned in verse 15, I'll call out childbirth and the magnificence of what that is and what a woman can do. But the undervaluing and undermining of this principle leads to somewhere between 600 and 900,000 abortions per year, just in the United States. 5,000 women are murdered in the U.S. every year. I hope that we're shocked by those. I hope we're saddened by those. But that's the reality of a judgment of Romans 1. The consequences of what happens when people are turned over to themselves and their own ideas. Who's to blame? Why do we find ourselves fighting these mindsets now? We're a culture that likes to pass blame and assign it to anybody very quickly. So let's ask, who is to blame? I'll give you a hint, it's not women. It's really a men's fault. It's men by failing to appreciate women as a creation and a gift of God and having failed to shepherd or to lead them towards God, to steward them for God and steer them in the character of God. This morning then we come to our text and I want us to rediscover and elevate a woman's value by looking at how the Lord values them. And so we come first to verses 9 and 10. It is here that the Apostle Paul, and through the Apostle Paul, really, the Lord gives instruction on women's dress. We could respond with incredulity, asking, why does the Lord even care what women wear? This seems like a trivial thing. And could even respond indignantly and say, I'll wear whatever I want to wear. Let's present ourselves, though, before this word and these verses humbly, trying to ascertain why was it so important to address it here. To do this, we're going to look at four aspects, the charge, the context, the conditions, and the connotation. If you look at the text of verses 9 and 10, what you see is they're actually a continuation of verse 8. There's a some of them will have a comma. Some of your versions will have a, a semicolon. There's no period there. This is not a new thought. This flows right from verse 8. And the Apostle Paul is telling people there that men should take the leadership in corporate prayer. 
by leading prayer with godliness, with holiness. And then he goes on to say, likewise, women should dress appropriately. So we're still in this context of corporate prayer and this context of corporate worship and what it means to function as a church body, according to 1 Timothy 3.15. I know it's been four weeks since we were last in those first verses of chapter 2. But there's an essential point that we should have gathered and carried over from the weeks of preaching, verses 1 through 8. And that that is prayer is worship. Prayer is an act of worship. And so what we have here is the, the body of Christ gathering together for the purposes of worshiping God. To call upon him, to glorify him, to praise him. But then here come these women entering the service. Dressed to the hilt, nails done, hair lengthened, heightened, sorry, to its fullest height. It's extravagance of gowns and jewelry. And it was all done to point the focus on themselves rather than on God. They were distracting from worship. Why had they started going down that path? I think verse 8 tells us. It goes back to a failure of men to lead properly in prayer. So now we look upon our text and we learn what is proper and why it is proper. There was a time when every occasion had its appropriate attire. What was worn for breakfast was not necessarily suitable for afternoon tea. And the day's work clothes were certainly against the nature of the evening dinner. And so people who could afford to changed their clothes multiple times a day. I once had a woman say that they changed for different clothes in the morning for breakfast, morning activities, lunch, nap, tea, dinner, and after dinner. They changed eight times a day. That's extreme, obviously. But the appropriate attire is what our verse speaks of. And so I want you to note first the charge. The charge states women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Upon reading those words, what we envision is a shabby woman of basically who throws on the day's clothes at a whim and may even be wearing the same thing all through the week and wearing whatever she wants to wear regardless of the task at hand. But that's not the meaning of this text. In fact, it's actually quite the opposite because it's telling women to adorn themselves. They are to concern themselves with their appearance, arranging and putting everything in order, and not just their clothes, but their entire look. Rolling out of bed in the morning, I, I don't care if you're man or woman, you probably wake up with everything in disarray. The hair does as it pleases. Most of us probably have some sort of crud or something in our eyes. To adorn oneself is simply just to put it all back in order. That idea is conveyed not just by the command to adorn, but also by the phrase proper or respectable apparel. The word for proper in the Greek is the word cosmeo, which should sound a little bit like cosmos. And cosmos really means system. That's, that's the word for a system of attire. If you read that verse, verse 9, 
Women should adorn themselves, mine says, in respectable apparel, but we could say in a system of apparel. The very antonym to the word cosmos is chaos. And so what this is conveying is to put everything back in order. To adorn oneself with proper or respectable apparel is to arrange her entire appearance according to who she is as created by God. What's that look like? The text tells us it looks like modesty and self-control. If you seek the definition for modesty, a typical definition, what you'll find is something like behavior, manner, or appearance intended to avoid impropriety or indecency. But the nuance of that word modesty is so much more meaningful because what it does is combines this notion of awe and reverence with shame. In fact, the King James translates it with shamefacedness, dress yourselves. That's an odd combination of words. But it all comes back to who the woman is created by the Lord. The majestic, awe-inspiring God has created woman and man by his very own hands, according to his own creativity. It's a marvelous work, and the call here is just simply to dress in a way that reflects that marvelousness. How a woman dresses is determined by who created her, and her modest dress is to inspire awe and reverence of that creator. And at the same time, and this is where the shame comes in, is that she would be ashamed if any way her dress distracted from the worship and the glory of the Lord which is what's happening in the church in Ephesus. The women are coming in dressed as much as they can be, drawing attention to themselves with no shame that they're actually detracting from what the Lord is doing. Matthew 18, 6 through 10 conveys the idea that those who love the Lord should hate sin and hate it so much that they would do anything to cause, avoid causing others to sin. And so in this case, she would feel shamed if she caused other people to fixate on anything other than the Lord. That's the principle at play here. To adorn herself in such a way that she would be saddened if her appearance causes others not to see the glory of God. The woman of Proverbs 31, she's described as a woman with clothing of fine linen and purple. Actually, her clothing is just like, in that description, just like the rich man that we described last week who went to hell. The difference is the linens of purple, for him, reflected his selfishness. The woman's linens of purple in Proverbs 31 reflect her grace. And more importantly, thus reflect God's grace. He dressed lavishly for himself, but she dressed gracefully for God. And that's all that's being asked of the woman spoken here of 1 Timothy. In gathering to worship the Lord through prayer, she's coming together with her fellow believers. And not just to meet with her fellow believers, she's coming to meet with her Lord. That's what worship is. John 4, 24, in spirit and in truth. It's meeting with our Lord and Savior. And so she's being asked to be prepared to meet her God. I remember a few years ago, a famous actress had an audience with the Pope. Few people discussed what actually took place. In fact, I couldn't tell you what they were supposed to be talking about or what they did talk about. 
Because what made headlines was this actress's dress. And it wasn't a dress. She, wasn't, she was wearing other clothes and not very much of them. She had come in very revealing attire, provocative attire, to meet the Pope. And the news stories picked up on that. So whatever message was supposed to be discussed was lost. A secular society re re understood the absurdity of that situation. And that was for meeting with a false teacher. How much more important it is, is it to be prepared to meet with the Lord? If I can make a parallel here, Exodus 35 begins this idea of constructing the temple or the tabernacle, sorry. And in the building up of that and discussing it, the, the people gather together and they hear the plan and they become excited. Their hearts are stirred, it says, to the point that it says in verses 21 through 23, they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contributions to be used for the tent of meeting, for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women. All who were of a willing heart brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets and all the sorts of objects of gold. Every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. The very things that people used to adorn themselves are now given to adorn the Lord's tabernacle. That's the same thing that's just being asked of here. As the Lord's temple, which everyone has declared to be the Lord's temple in 1 Corinthians 6, as the Lord's temple, the Lord's just asking them to adorn it by offering their own contributions, worshiping him by what they wear. But why are women singled out here? Everything I just gave you could apply just as much to a man. In one sense, shouldn't they be similar, subject to similar practices? Men wear clothes as well. I would answer absolutely. But we have to remember that Paul is writing to a specific church, Ephesus, about a very specific circumstance, which draws out these principles related to women. Because in this case, it's the women who are involved. And so we need to note, second, the context of what's taking place. Their true ambition here is they're gathering for worship, which was really a pretense. Their, their true ambition was an opportunity for self-promotion and the building up of their pride by dressing in such a way that they called attention to themselves. And so in doing so, they become a distraction. And the, so the Lord says, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Notice that the text draws attention to two specific, specific areas, apparel, attire, the clothes, and hair. <coughs> In Paul's day, hairstyles were undergoing a radical change. Earlier in the Greek world, women's hairstyles were simple. Their hair was pinned down in the back, and it was, it was held up with just a simple band, maybe a scarf. In public, the respectable women then would wear veils on top of their heads. 
only a shady woman, or perhaps one in mourning too, would appear in public with her hair untied or unveiled. And then in the mid-first century, so about this time, women throughout the Roman Empire started to copy the elaborate braided and ornamental hairdos of the Roman empresses. And many of those Roman empresses were quite scandalous in themselves. In light of this, James Hurley goes on to explain that those elaborate hairstyles were very fashionable among the wealthy. Even the literature of the day, or the sculptures that were created out of marble, out of clay, they were created and showed that women would wear their hair in these huge, elaborate arrangements with braids and curls, interwoven and piled high like towers, and then decorated with gold or pearls. But it's not just the hairdo themselves that are mentioned in connection with these golden pearls. They are mentioned with that. We think of gold and pearls as part of what we wear, necklaces, rings. But at that time, it was part of their hairstyle. By braiding their hair, the women could then weave in pearls and, and things of gold. And what that was signaling was their indulgent lifestyle of some sort. Gold itself was used to add luster to themselves. It's actually a practice that dates all the way back to the Old Testament times. Marshall shares that patches of gold sometimes would be worn, both by men and women in robe, in order to cover just their blemishes on their face. Josephus records that Solomon's soldiers used to dust themselves with gold so that as they were riding along and fighting, that they would glimmer with gold. The problem with what is taking place and being highlighted here in our text, is it's not the mere adornment. It's the excessive nature of that adornment. It was beyond highlighting a woman's natural beauty as God's creation, and rather about doing all she could to bring attention to herself. And that was even reflected then in the clothes that they wore. Again, during this particular era, dresses were expensive. One woman might own one or two dresses in her lifetime. But the women in question here showed their wealth by having the opportunity to wear many dresses over even just a given week. There's only two reasons at that time that women would dress in this way, either excessive wealth or excessive immorality. Pliny the Elder shows a picture of excessive wealth in his work of natural history, and he recounts the story of Lalia Paulina. She's the wife of Caligula. And he describes her as having a dress that if you convert it to today's money, cost several hundred thousand dollars. And then we have Philo who speaks of this picture of excessive immorality in his work, The Sacrifices of Cain and Abel. It's a fictional work. But in it, he describes this prostitute and he portrays that prostitute as wearing many gold chains and bracelets. Again, her hair is updone in an elaborate and style and gaudy braids. As her eyes were marked with pencil lines, her eyebrows smothered in paint, and then she wore expensive clothing. 
In both cases, the women involved define their worth by the worth of what they wore. As a child of God, created by the hands of God, in the image of God, a woman's value is in so much more than that. Actually, by the excessiveness, the women were undermining their value. Basically, what you see here is this instruction. It's really given to preserve the value and reputation of a woman. It's saying you don't need that excessive embellishment. You're already valuable as you are as God's creation. Your worth is in who you are in, in God. And so rather than detract from who she is, the instructions are a means to preserve who she already is. Because of what is influencing the church, specifically women, Paul had no choice but to address it. It's a situation that is relevant today, and, and so the principle still applies. And so I want you to note, third, the conditions. We find here a qualification is given, advising them not just what not to do, but what to do in its place. And so it's important to note again that these verses are not forbidding nice dress or even adorning oneself with hairstyles or jewelry. Song of Solomon in chapter 1, actually he praises his bride. And he says, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with string of jewels. Others, we, we will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. In this case, her jewelry is pleasing. It's making her beautiful in that moment, it's pleasing to her husband. Jewelry was forbidden in our text when it was a means to flaunt oneself flaunt one's wealth or immorality. The same was true of hairstyles. Again, notice the text doesn't say, do not create a hairstyle. Specifically, though, it says braided hair. And at that time, the braided hair signified the problems with the excessive hairstyles. Like jewelry, the exaggerated hairstyles were an issue because they were a means of flaunting wealth or immorality. And so the instruction to not dress one way is then adorned with a condition, to dress in accordance with their profession, as it says here, their profession of faith. There are women who, these are women who profess to be followers of Christ, something that's assumed by the fact that they were present at a prayer meeting, a corporate prayer meeting. And so now the exhortation, the condition, is to simply dress in a way that is commiserate with their profession of faith. In describing Israel's lack of faith, Hosea portrays them with the Lord's words. And the Lord says, And I will punish her, Israel, for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. A similar found, portrayal is found in Isaiah, and there Isaiah proclaims, in that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings, and the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors, the linens, garments, the turbans, and the veils. It goes on, by their dress, Israel would have judged themselves faithful, but by this mocking of their dress, 
Isaiah suggests otherwise. Instead of focusing on outward appearance, what is more important to the Lord is that inward attitude. And so the condition to not clothe oneself in these outward things is instead that they should have an inward heart attitude that manifests and clothe themselves in good works. That's the condition. Scripture provides us with a number of examples of, of women that did just that. Phoebe is described as a patron of Paul and a patron of many others in Romans chapter 16. Lydia is an example in Acts 16, 15. It says, and after she, Lydia, was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And then Acts chapter 9 tells of Dorcas and how she clothed herself in good works. Each of them showed who they were in the Lord, not by their physical attire, but by dressing in those good works. And this way, a woman dressed in good works first draws attention to her own character, but then she also draws attention to God's character. In light of a culture, this verse is really offering itself as a means first to protect a woman and her reputation, as I just said. This is a protective factor to protect women. But there's a second aspect. It doesn't stop there. See, by claiming to profess godliness, everything they did reflected on the Lord. And it was a means to witness for the Lord. And so what this is doing is also to protect the reputation of God. And so this is the reason we have the condition to clothe themselves in good works. But I want you to note one final thing, the connotations. What are the implications of what we see here? Desiderius Erasmus speaks of the beauty of a Christian woman. And he gives this rather long quote. And he says, now let the women pray, cultivating their souls, not their bodies. God forbid that Christian women should come into the holy congregation in such a manner of clothing as the common sort of profane women are accustomed to wear. Having spent too much time and effort in front of the mirror first, with hair finely curled or interwoven with gold, or with pearls hanging from their ears or necks, or wearing silk or fine purple, these are designed to show off their beauty to such as a gaze on them and to display their wealth to those who are poor. But... Let the clothing of the Christian women be like their lives, appropriate for women who profess true godliness and true worship of God, which wealth alone is pleasing to God, meaning their good works were pleasing to God. While speaking to the physical attire, there's actually three spiritual con connotations. The most critical aspect here is something that we should have already picked up on, that we've already seen. And that first principle is that the inward should reflect the outward, or the outward should reflect the inward. Colossians chapter 3, Paul uses this imagery of somebody changing his or her clothes and telling all people, men or women, that they are to put off anything that is inconsistent with godliness. That anger, that obscene talk, malice. And instead, he says, put on new clothes, having been made new in Christ. 
Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That idea is that the outward reflects the inward disposition. Or Robert Gromacki sums it up succinctly and just says a woman should be known for, for who she is, not what she wears. A second principle is that a woman can attract or detract from worship. The problem at hand is that the women being spoken of here have entered that prayer service, but they're seeking to have the eyes placed on them, not on God during prayer. Such an attitude, again, is possible for both men and women. And by calling attention to it here in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul really forces all believers to examine themselves before any act of worship. But there's a final principle we should learn here. That a woman's value is determined not by who she makes herself to be, but by who God has made her to be. How people treat one another is determined by how they answer the question, what makes a person valuable? If we answer that question wrongly, it will have consequences on every human institution. So how we answer the question, what makes a person valuable, for example, will determine the structure and the quality of our medical care. It will determine the beliefs and the principles and the programs of our government. This verse tells us that what makes a person valuable, or, or specifically, it tells us what makes a woman valuable. And a woman is valuable because the Lord has made her and made her in God's image. God has created her with specific gifts and specific skills. Her value and her confidence come not in trying to make herself up more, but to adorn who she is naturally as God's creation. In fact, I would say to make herself up more is saying I'm not good enough as God has made me. He didn't do a perfect job. <laughs> and so I have to do more. But that undermines who she is and it undermines who God is and what he has done. So why would we undermine God-given beauty as it is, both inward and outward? As God's creation, she is already naturally beautiful. And the only way to add anything valuable to that is through good works, which draw attention not to herself, but to the God who created her. Peter writes something very similar to what Paul writes here. And Peter says, it should sound familiar, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the, clo uh, the clothing you wear. Let your adorning be hidden the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Her good works point to a good God. As John Stott has rightly said, the church should be a veritable beauty parlor because it encourages its women members to adorn themselves with good deeds. Women need to remember that if nature has made them plain, grace can make them beautiful. And if nature has made them beautiful, good deeds add to their beauty. That's why the psalmist can declare, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. There's a tendency to judge people by their clothes. 
I have a theory why we do this. To adequately and accurately know someone, we have to be willing to forego our own time and spend it on others. That requires time and effort, sometimes weeks and months. But clothes and a person's overall appearance, all we have to do is look at them at a quick glance, and we're lazy people. And so by a quick glance, we can make a judgment and an interpretation about them rather than spending time. And so by their clothes, what you see people do is judge a person's personality. By their clothes, people will judge a person's economic status. We look upon appearance as a means to determine a person's professionalism or, or even their competence level. In some instances, clothes are a means in which we try to determine someone's confidence or self-esteem or mood or emotions. Clothes are a way in which others judge somebody's individuality or their creativity. That list could go on. I came up with 17 ways we use clothes to judge people this morning. But what this text really answers is, what is the meaning of clothes? They began as a covering for sin. It was not until the fall in Genesis chapter 3 that clothes were even given. And at that point, they were a means to point both to the impact of sin and God's forgiving grace in covering those sins. But clothes as a part of a person's overall appearance in our society, they now have all these other meanings. There are means to, to identify a person's identity. Some cases it might express one's culture. In some cases, they may show a person's occupation. Somebody dressed in a suit and tie is probably out in the, out in the field. And somebody in jeans caked with dirt is probably in the field. Clothes can carry historical significance. Different areas had different types. And for most people today, clothes is a, are just an expression of one's self. But what we learn here is clothes are not the expression of ourselves. Clothes are the expression of the Lord. Many people begin the day asking, what should I wear? What is the appropriate dress for a person today? And the answer is, it's determined by heart attitude. It's determined by who they are in the Lord. Again, never is nice dress or hairstyles condemned. It's the excessiveness and these instructions about these clothes, that they may seem trivial, but they have those two important purposes, to protect the value of a woman and to protect the value of the Lord. And then there's something more important here, and it's not just physical dress, it's one's spiritual dress. To dress and robe herself, not in, in fine linens of purple, but to dress and robe herself in fine works of godliness so that she displays who the Lord is. Let's pray. Father God, we can easily come to texts like these and see you as a, a Lord who is full of nothing but rules and regulations, Lord. And Father, I pray that what indeed we would realize is that as a parent, parents a child, rules and regulations are meant out of love to, to help. They're meant to be a guide. They're meant for the child's good. Father, that's what we see or should see in First Timothy chapter 2, Lord. And so, Father, may we come to this text and see 
see that here. May we see your love and value of women in that. And Father, may, may we draw nearer to you because we see who you are in the midst of that, Lord. And so, Father, may you help us to overcome any cultural biases we have and instead look upon this text as your word, your truth, and allow it to dwell and permeate our minds and our hearts. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.